Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 84. In the interest of time, I will not read through the whole psalm right now. I will go through it line by line as we seek to exposit the word today. Let me pray for our time together. We thank you, Father, for blessing us in this way and giving us provision. You've given us your word. You've given us clear insight into how you see the world, how you work, what matters to you, and what should matter to us. I pray that we would be informed, strengthened, and encouraged by what we find here. And if you would, just where you are, pray for yourself that the Lord would bless our time together and that you would be able to understand and receive what he has for you. And if you would also pray for me that I would be able to use words that make sense and communicate in a way that would be helpful to you and faithful to the text. Father, we love you and we trust you. Please do with this time as you will for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. To begin with, I want to answer a, an important question. Why Psalm 87? We've been in a series on 1 Peter. We're nearing the end of that series, so I need to explain a little bit why we're in Psalm 84. We have several other men in this congregation who are gifted in teaching and preaching, and one of the difficulties with multiple men who are gifted in teaching and preaching is to have some sense of unity and uniformity in our preaching, and one of the things that I think would be great, because the Apostle Paul declares himself guiltless in the case of the Ephesian church, is that he did not shrink from declaring them the whole counsel of God. And so one of the ways that we as a church want to embrace the whole counsel of God is to have a kind of ongoing series behind or at the same time as any verse-by-verse series that we're doing in the books of the Bible and focus on the Psalms. There are so many reasons to do so. It is the songbook of God's people. When we sing songs like, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and I remember that my grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents sang that same song. Uh, It is profoundly moving. And the Psalms represent for us the songbook of the people of God for thousands of years. So when we come to these verses, these are the things that have resonated with God's people for a long, long time. And we are following along the same contours of their hearts as we look at them. The Psalms are so rich, they're not just a songbook for God's people, but they're also a guide for us as to how we should respond and interact with the Lord from the heart. We know, I hope, uh, and we're, that we are supposed to worship God, we're supposed to glorify God, but I want us to ask and think about questions like this. How am I supposed to feel towards God? 
How can I shepherd my own heart when I am feeling less than ideal things about God and toward Him? So many in the church, I think, miss the significance of questions like that. We diminish emotion. We diminish affections. The Psalms, while giving us rich theology, aren't primarily about theology, at least in a propositional way. It is a spirit-inspired mapping out of how we ought to relate to God from the heart in a deeply holistic way. But why Psalm 84 specifically? Everything I just said could apply to any psalm. Why Psalm 84 specifically? We have been in our series in 1 Peter, for those of you who haven't been here for it, focusing on 1 Peter 5, 1-6, through 6, which is exhortations to elders. And my motive for fo- focusing on those verses for essentially four weeks now is to play my part in summoning the heart of a shepherd into existence in our church and beyond. I want to cast a vision for us as a church together. And we've been focusing on shepherds and what an elder is supposed to do. Also, I even want to exhort young men to consider. Maybe five to 15 years from now, even if you're very, very young in this room, you'll think back to these messages about shepherding and realize that God was in your heart working all along to give you the heart of a shepherd. I never heard things like this, the things that we've been talking about as it relates to shepherding and the shepherd's heart all growing up. Or if I did hear them, I was too interested in who I liked or being liked uh, that I didn't hear. I didn't listen. So I want you to hear it. And I want to play my part in making sure that the sheep of God have more shepherds. So how does this psalm then relate to shepherding? Here's what I realized. I'm I'm involved to a degree with the selection of songs for our worship services. And what I noticed in this emphasis on shepherding is that there are no songs that celebrate shepherds at all. There there are songs that celebrate God as our shepherd. There are no songs that I could find. If you know one, please come see me afterwards. We don't sing songs as the people of God celebrating this thing called shepherding. So if it's so important, which I've made the case this whole time that it is, Why don't we sing about it? And so that leads to naturally to the next question. We should be in conformity to Scripture. Do the Scriptures sing about it? And my argument is that Psalm 84 is a celebration of those who serve in God's house. Not using the language of shepherding explicitly, but under the Old Covenant, there were people who served in a specific way in the house of God. And that's what's going on in this passage. And this is how we can celebrate what God has done. So my starting thesis is that this psalm is a psalm of longing to be in God's house. A psalm of longing to be in God's house. A result of that longing of even feeling holy envy and blessing towards those who serve. That's what happens in our hearts when we long to be in God's house. And this encouragement is needed because the work of shepherding is often hard and filled with discouragements. And I want to give you a fair warning. Uh, if, if you're visiting, I usually am able to hold it together and not show any sign of weakness and no tears, but I haven't had much sleep, and these things are especially moving, so just a fair warning, I may not be able to hold it together. So let's look at it. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm 
of the sons of Korah. Who were the sons of Korah? And why does it matter? These were doorkeepers or singers or servants in the temple and in the tabernacle before. They're the authors of 11 of our psalms. In many cases, at least as it relates to psalms, it doesn't much matter who the author is. Um, It doesn't matter a whole lot as far as interpretation is concerned who penned it. And there is some debate uh, as to how original these statements are. You can notice in your Bibles, depending on your version, it it puts a different uh, uh, font for these uh, superscriptions. If you listen to some audio Bibles, most of them won't read these portions. They'll just go straight into the psalm. But in our most reliable manuscripts, this, a lot of these superscriptions, these attributions of authorship are still there. So if this is original, or if it is an inspired addition to the text, we have to ask the question, why in the world would the Holy Spirit care for us to know that this is from the sons of Korah? Well, who is this guy Korah? This is none other than the infamous Korah who opposed Moses. You can read about the story in Numbers 16, one of the most terrifying stories in the whole Old Testament. So it's this guy. There's a rebellion named after him. It's Korah's rebellion. We won't go there just for the sake of time, but it's a fascinating story. It's terrifying. The ground opens up and consumes all those who stood with Korah. And fire broke out from God and killed 250 men. When the author of Hebrews speaks of in the days of the rebellion, that's what he's referring to. Infamous in every way. So, these are his descendants. That Korah. At least some of his sons, apparently, weren't with him and weren't consumed in the opening up of the earth. But what an infamous heritage. That'd be like living in the UK or the US after World War II with a last name, a German surname like Hitler or Heimler. What would you do? The sons of Korah. And there's a few things that we can say in connection with this, just immediately as encouragements. The Lord yet uses this family, descendants of that Korah, and gives them a permanent heritage in service of the temple of God. God seems to be interested in using less than likely candidates for his purposes. Consider the ministry of the Apostle Paul. What kind of legacy did he have before he became an apostle? In this season of summoning you to the heart of a shepherd, maybe you've been discouraged. Maybe you don't have what you think it takes. Maybe your heritage is questionable. God appoints even the sons of Korah to serve in his house. There is no legitimate reason to not seek to serve in his house. But it also gives us a clue as to the setting of the writing of the psalm, and this is important as well, and it will inform our interpretation. If it's the sons of Korah, then I think these three things have, uh, these four things rather, have to be the case. It was written in the time of the kings of Judah before the Babylonian exile. 
It was written after the temple was built, so not during the time of David. And it was at a time when temple worship was being neglected, or at least pilgrimage up to the temple would have been difficult. So I think we can identify it, based on all of those markers, as during the spiritual revivals under Hezekiah or Josiah. The point I'm driving at is this. This psalm is written at a time when the state of things spiritually in Judah was in serious disarray. There was serious spiritual decline. So it is written in a time similar to ours. And this is what the Holy Spirit inspires the sons of Korah to write in many ways to address, I think, the problems with the spiritual state of God's people. It's a psalm of longing for the house of God. Come to God's house. Serve in God's house. That's, that's what this psalm is doing at a time when things are bad. Though there is no more physical temple, and the people of God is all the sons and daughters of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, and the promised land is no longer a, a strip of real estate in the Middle East, but the whole world, yet... The spiritual decline is similar. When you look out in the world, the state of things around, what do you see? What do you see? We look out into the world, we see all sorts of problems. What is the biggest problem, do you think, when you look out at the world? Is it bad political ideology? Is it sin? Is it the communists? Is it the Californians? What's the biggest problem in the world? Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says. The decay of the church is never, never the fault of the world. Inward spiritual decline always precedes outward collapse. That is absolutely the case. We are the light of the world. We are the city on the hill. We are the salt of the earth, and we have failed. This is why things are as they are. We don't hold high the cross anymore. The spiritual decline in the time when this is written is exactly like ours, and this is why I think it is so important for us to hear. This is the kind of thing we need. We need a summons to come to the house of God. We need to hear the blessings of those who dwell in or serve in the house of God. Remember the series that we preached on Haggai. It is time. It is time to rebuild God's house. And so we come to the title, the summary, the main point. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. When he says, how lovely if it's your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, uh, from my study, it seems like that this is the title of the song. So this would be the name of the song that you would, you would see or read if you were to look it up on the internet. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And so the psalmist tells us right out the gate what his main agenda, his main point is. He looks at the house of God and he says, how lovely how beautiful is your house? His heart rejoices in it. Does the beauty of God's house resonate with you? 
It's one thing to say that you know that God is glorious, but what about His house? And it's one thing to know that God, what God's house is in the different phases of redemptive history, but that's not the same thing as having, over, as having an overflowing joy in God's house. And it's not the same thing as loving God. It's related, but it is different. In the same way that you can rejoice in the beauty of creation as you are praising God, as you look at His works, loving God's house is a little bit different than just loving God directly. You're seeing something that God has done and created and built and delighting in it as such. And He gives us a summary of the song. I think this is kind of His main point. He's given us the title and then His main point in the next statements. And he peers inward. He does not so much tell us things about God or things about his word or even things about his house. He looks into his heart and says something to us about his own heart. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Might the state of your heart be such that it could be written into a praise song for the Lord. You can stand in church and say all the things you want to about God that are objectively true, but what's going on in here? Do you know what I mean by longing? He looks in and he sees longing, not just for God, but specifically in this song, his house. Do you know what it means to have a fainting soul? To have a singing heart and singing flesh. Young people, have you ever longed for something like that? With that degree of intensity. It's very different from infatuation. It's very different even from romantic feelings. It can be towards someone you love. But it's more than just mere excitement about a person. So he gives us this word, fainting. We shouldn't think of a Victorian sense of fainting, you know, because they wore too much clothes. What was going on when he's penning this is the idea of being famished. Fainting for lack of food or water. He looks inwardly then at the state of his heart and he tries to describe what he sees. And the best word picture he can give to us is that my soul is fainting for the house of my God. You know that feeling? I don't know if you do. But we've been several days without a decent meal. Or maybe you have fasted at one point and your body reaches that point, that crucial moment when it is screaming at you, give us food! Or maybe you've gone a very long time in a very, very hot place. Like Texas in the middle of summer. Or North Idaho. I was totally scammed coming up here. We're 80 miles from Canada, and it's hotter here sometimes than it is in Texas. I don't get it. You've been out in that heat, and for whatever reason, you've had to go a whole day without a decent drink of water. Or even the sweat dripping into your mouth is some sense of refreshment. That sense of being completely without what you need to keep going on, that is what the psalmist sees when he looks in his heart. 
when it comes to his longings for the house of God. And why? Why does he feel this way? What, what could possibly happen to a person to give them this intense longing for the house of God? One, he's not there and he wants to be. And two, because God's glory fills the house, fills his house in a way that his glory doesn't in other places. This is a key element. If you're a worshiper under the old covenant, you could see and worship God in any setting. We're going to see this often. But going to God's house, that was something different. He longs for God's house because he longs to see and know his God. He loves God's house because in a special sense, even though God is everywhere, that's where God is. So the key question today that we have is this. How does this psalm then apply to us who are under the new covenant? How do we take this? There's no temple. Should we all go to the Holy Land? Should we all go to the Wailing Wall and try to summon up this experience in our hearts? If that were the case, then Jesus would make no sense with some of his statements. Not a stone will be left on top of another. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. A day is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and truth, neither down in Jerusalem nor on this mountain. Let's answer this question by asking another question. Where or what then is God's house? You see where this is going. If you know anything about even a basic theology of the New Testament, you know that God's house is his people. The church, the bride of Christ, those who call on him from a pure heart. That, or they, are God's house. I could take you to so many places in the New Testament to speak about this and to show this very, very clearly. But almost none so clear as Hebrews 3, verses 5 through 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We looked at the same theme earlier in our series in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Look, I know it's not innovative. It's not very revolutionary. It's not even deeply insightful to tell you that the church is God's new house. Or maybe it always was. Like, however you would take that. Like, that's not innovative to say. But this connection, this connection between the idea of what God's house is and psalms like this has been lost in many, many ways. Those longings that kind of fainting of soul, that kind of singing out of flesh and heart, that's what I'm supposed to feel towards the body of Christ. With as much exegetical confidence as I can muster, yes. Absolutely. 
This is then what the believer ought to feel for the church, for the body of Christ. Do you? If you don't, why not? Do you even want to have these longings? And he gives us a further illustration of what he sees in his heart. So he's already looked in and told us what he sees, a fainting heart, flesh that sings, a heart that sings out of longing for God's house. And then he says, even the sparrows find a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. I call this a jealous lament of longing comparison, which is a mouthful, I understand. But the artistry and cleverness of this verse is astounding. It does so many things at once. Remember the setting. Whoever is writing this, uh, he, he wants to go to God's house, but for some reason he's prevented of being there. He wants to go and be in God's presence with God's people in God's house, but he can't for some reason. He wants deeply to be there. So he looks at the sparrows and the swallows and what he sees makes him have even more holy envy or jealousy and an even deeper longing. There are two ways to to take this, actually. Both may be intended in one way or another. Hebrew is hard and old. But the first way to take it is as the ESV has it. So uh, I'll just read it. Uh, The sparrows and the swallows, they, they make their nests at your altars. If that's the case, then what he is looking at or remembering, because he can't be there, is that he remembers that there were birds at the temple, in in the temple complex, that would make their nest in the eaves of the the places, uh, of the the pinnacles, and all those places where a person couldn't really get without risking serious bodily injury. And those birds lived there, flying around God's house. So they get to be there, and he can't. He sees how close they are to God's house and he wishes he could be like them. And I think this this is true or would be true, even if we take the second meaning and we'll get to that in a bit. But let's just focus on this first interpretation. Alexander McLaren, an old Scottish Baptist pastor, taking it in this first way, calls this a bitter and significant contrast. Here's what he says. They, speaking of the swallows and the sparrows, they build their nests and they do not know whose altars they are flitting around. They pursue insects on the wing. And they Twitter their little songs. This was before Twitter. And they do not understand how all their busy, glancing, brief, trivial life is being lived beneath the shadow of the cherubim. And all but in the presence of the veiled God of the Shekinah. And the longing worshiper is filled with this holy longing and even envy for little birds who get to be closer, unknowing of what they are in the presence of. The very courts of his God. The second way to take this, I think it is more likely, is in the Hebrew, there's no preposition here. We have to insert words here and there sometimes when we translate Hebrew because it's poetry. Hebrew is very old and hard. But here's what it would read like, just straight literal. Yes, the sparrows have found a house 
and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. There's just a hard sentence break. It's rough in the flow of the poetry. I think the second sense is more likely because he's lamenting that the sparrow and swallow finds a place to live, a fitting home, a place where it belongs, where the swallow feels in her proper place, a fitting place to raise up the next generation. And then mid-thought, he just interrupts himself and belts out, your altars, O Lord. Maybe he has his own house where he's writing this. Who knows? Maybe it's even a nice house overlooking the Sea of Galilee, lakefront property. But he longs for God's house. The sparrows get to find a home. They get to feel at home. The worshiper of God doesn't really unless you come into his house. The sense, I think, is what Augustine so famously said. You made us for yourself, and our hearts will find no rest until they rest in you. Think of it this way. He could be saying it like this. Why is it that soulless birds can find a fitting place to dwell in, but I have to be separated from the house of my God and be filled with all these unmet longings for the altars of my God? That is so profound for so many reasons. We get to spend the rest of our morning just talking about that. But I'll just leave you with a few soul-searching questions. And we'll have to move on. Soul-searching question, number one. Does this envious longing for the house of God sound anything like your thoughts or longings for God's house? Have you ever felt this way? about God's house. Or maybe you are like the sparrows or the swallows, unknowing what you're in the presence of. Maybe you're too comfortable in this world. Do you know that from the moment you became a Christian, you became a homeless exile with respect to this world? You don't have a place to lay your head. What are your feelings about God's house right now in this deep theological sense that we're talking about the house of God? And then we come to the blessings for those whose life is God's house. He says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And so, Pivoting now from what he sees when he looks inwardly or when he looks at the birds, he pronounces a blessing. He blesses out of this longing and this yearning for those who already have what he wants. He longs to be closer to God than he is, to know God, dare I say, even see God in ways that he can't. And in his mind, He looks at those who are there and who get to be there when he can't and he blesses them. This is what I mean by holy jealousy. How do you know if you have holy jealousy jealousy or sinful jealousy? Well, if you start blessing those who have what you want, 
even while you can't, that's holy jealousy. There are those in the administration of the temple and the tabernacle before who, because of the nature of their job, the nature of their service, they had to live around or even in the tent or the temple afterwards. Some of them were priests. Some of them were singers like the sons of Korah. And some were just servants. And note this, not all of Israel, not all of the people of God were able to do this. Not all of them could live in the temple, right? They wouldn't fit, but obviously it would be inappropriate. Connecting this then with what we saw about how to take this under the new covenant, we have to ask this question, does this distinction abide? Is it true that even now in the new covenant, there are those who are blessed to make their lives all about the house of God? And my claim is yes. It is true that God can be found or worshipped anywhere. You can worship God while you're alone on a desert island or in front of the kitchen sink. But can you find his house anywhere? No. Simply not the case. Because you can be in situations and settings where you are not with the people of God. You can be out of God's house, even under the new covenant. The, the problem is that it's so much more subtle. There are ways to come in this room, right, which is not God's house. This building is not God's house. We are God's building and his house. You can come into this building and based on how you do or don't participate, you can be outside of God's house while being in our midst. The house of God is found when and where people gather under the lordship of of Jesus Christ and submit to him as he commands. It can be in your homes when you have a fellow member over. It is at the coffee shop when you seek to obey the one another commands with each other. It can even be in your car or office when you have fellowship with another believer and pray for each other. But it is especially seen and manifest when we gather as his people and baptize new believers and take the Lord's Supper and submit to His Word together. That is where God's house is seen and known in this world. And so there are a few applications for ministers. Those who would seek to shepherd, as we've been talking about, or those who would seek to make their lives about God's house. In the past four weeks, we've said a lot about shepherding care. And a lot has been said about the difficulty of it. And it is hard but this psalm gives us insight into something very important. There are blessings now for those who serve in or dwell in God's house as servants. They are blessed. They are happy, he says. Some of you may have heard stories from pastors, maybe even this one, that give you the sense that uh, shepherding surely can't be blessed. Not at least now. Surely there's a reward in the hereafter, but this is a difficult, difficult thing. Why would anyone want to do that? To be sure, there are many who think they have a heart of a shepherd. And they think they aspire to biblical shepherding. And then they get in and they're not ready for the bad and the ugly. And there's a lot of it. And there are some seasons where it's unrelenting. But if you have this heart, a heart that yearns and longs for God's house, then shepherding becomes a joy. 
even in, maybe even especially in the difficulty. Because you love God's house. Maybe it helps us, this idea helps us understand how Paul can say, on the one hand, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then on the other hand, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And in another place, you are my joy and crown, he says to the church. Remember this, the main feature, the best attraction to be in and serve in God's house is that this is his house. His people is where he especially dwells. Oh, to dwell in and serve in God's house. That means the church now. Why? Because his church is where he dwells especially. And he is about the business. Understand this. He is about the business of building up his house. You want solidarity and a feeling of nearness with your God? Join him in his business of building up his house. That's what he's doing. That's what the Lord Jesus is, is doing. So everything that I've said or that others have said, those of you who are members or have been here for the last four weeks, about shepherding, now transmute that to a different analogy. It is God's house now that we're talking about. This, this new metaphor. All those things that we've talked about for the last four weeks are the job description of being a servant and one who dwells in God's house under the new covenant. That's how all this works together. And so this psalm is then a celebration, a blessing towards those who especially serve in God's house. Who make their lives about it. And there are also applications for all believers. We will see more of this in a bit. But it's worth noting that the sons of Korah themselves were not priests. They were Levites, to be sure. But it seems that their trust, this responsibility, was to tend to the doors. They were doorkeepers. Didn't have to be a priest. Didn't have to be one who was going around teaching Torah. Didn't have to be the actual one to slit the throat of the sacrificial animal. They're just keeping the doors. They're the honor guards, if you will, of the temple. And they wrote songs. And the point, I think, is this, that there is no menial task when it actually benefits God's real house. No menial task. God's house is his people. Might this be the flavor behind what Jesus says when he, when he talks about reward in heaven? If you even give a cup of cold water to someone because he is my follower, you will by no means lose your reward. Even as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. He takes it personal. He takes even the smallest things done with an aim to bless his house and the living stones that make it up as direct service in building up his very house. Why should you, a believer in Christ, to be sure, but maybe you don't have the time or energy or skills 
serve in any official capacity like deacon or pastor or minister, yet still, why should you yet still, even if that is the case, attend to and be in and among God's house? Because this is where God is. This is where he especially expresses his glory and goodness. This struck me while I was studying and trying to figure out Ephesians for other reasons. Ephesians 3.10 stood out to me. And it changed my life because I was, I was wanting to preach. I was wanting to speak to a lot of people. I, you couldn't have made me happier than gathering a ton of people who just wanted me to yell at them about Jesus for an hour, right? But Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church is ground zero. It is his house where he is especially seen and known in this world. And you are invited to serve in it. You want to experience greater closeness with the Father? Do you want deeper solidarity with the Lord Jesus? Do you want greater blessing and gifting from the Holy Spirit? Then strive to excel in building up God's house. That's what he's doing. And I I could sense an objection. But what about my family? I don't have a lot of time to do this. I've got my own responsibilities. And I think the, the family of the sons of Korah gives us a perfect illustration of how these things balance. Their family identity, might we even say their family business, was to see about the cares and concerns of God's house. You've met these families before, I'm sure, in former churches or in this church, where there's something about this family where what characterizes them is care and love and appreciation and service to the house of God. There were many of these families growing up in the different churches I was a part of, and and they were always striking. And I think that's the invitation and how to balance it all, but we'll move on. Now we come to the drama of the pilgrimage to God's house. We'll go through these quickly. The next several verses give us, uh, given the longings rather, of and the blessing explained in the first several verses, then become an invitation and a petition and a very significant statement. So, a invitation, a petition, and a very significant statement. That's clunky, I know, but that's how this breaks down. This is an invitation to actually go up to God's house. To make pilgrimage. Even given the cost and the danger that that might pose for a person in this time. Then there is a petition for the Lord's protection and blessing for provision and strength to make it to Zion. And then we see a very significant statement at the end. So number one, there's blessing, the blessing of desiring God's house. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. This is a summons, like I said, to make pilgrimage to the house of God. And it begins with a blessing. The blessing speaks of the blessings of those who get their heart right. Happy are those who gird up their loins, who take strength in the Lord and set their hearts on the highways that lead to Zion. 
set your heart to draw strength from your God so that you may make the journey to the house of God and come into his presence with his people. And this summons draws from the heavenly blessedness that the sons of Korah long for. But what about us today? I think the apostles' prophecy is coming true, will always be coming true, and coming true more and more. The love of many has grown cold. And the journey is hard. Christ says of his bride, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. But us, we look at the church, We see lingering problems and imperfections and we withdraw. We are sinfully content to not be a real part of God's house or serve or dwell within. You know, God sees his church as perfect, even given its imperfections. If you've ever been involved in a building project, you know that this is exactly the case. You know how much mess there is in building something new? You can't even walk into the construction site without coming without tracks following you, especially after a sheetrock. Paint gets on you, sawdust everywhere. But the person who knows what's going on, who's over the construction, and knows the steps that need to take place, they take joy in every step, even given the mess. That's how God views his church. What about you? Joy at every step. But we see the mess, we see the dust, sheetrock, paint everywhere, and we withdraw. Number two, we see God's provision for those who seek his house. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Literally, this is the valley of weeping. It was likely a literal valley that those making pilgrimage up to Jerusalem would have had to go through in order to get there. And for some reason, we don't know exactly why, but it was marked with difficulty because it's called the Valley of Weeping. You don't call the easy spot in the journey the Valley of Weeping. But what is he saying? I think what he's saying is this, that as you make your way to God's house, as you stir up longings to be in God's house, you will encounter difficulty. There will be a Valley of Baca, and it might be every single day. But God's provision is this, that he will turn even the valley of weeping that we will for sure encounter into a place of vibrant springs and freshly filled pools of water. The imagery might even imply that the tears they shed become these vibrant springs. He turns our mourning into dancing. Number three, we we see God's assistance and promise for those who seek his house. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So not only does the Lord work in our circumstances to make straight the highways to Zion, filled with refreshment instead of weeping, but we have this profound two-pronged promise. The first portion of the promise is this, that God gives strength along the way and moment by moment as you need it. God is pleased to take those who seek his house 
and who set their hearts on the highways to Zion and give them all kinds of strength to make it so. And the second portion of this promise is this. If you set your heart on coming into God's house, you will arrive. They all come to Zion. It is as sure as the rising of the sun. I'll say this a few more times, but you could spend a whole sermon on this idea itself. They all come to Zion. If you truly seek God's house in faith, your longings will be fulfilled. Find me a better promise in all that the world has to offer than that. If you set your heart, your longings on the house of God, you will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Every Christian's joy will be full on the last day when we see our Lord Christ return. But some, some will have been spending decades after decades, after decades, longing for God's house. And when that new Jerusalem comes from the sky, they will be filled with more joy because of their longings now will be fulfilled. What are you seeking? Verse, uh, the fourth part of this drama of pilgrimage is a petition for those who seek God's house. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Now this is the petition. He's talked about the summons to come. The promises for those who will come. And here's the petition. He's asking God, number one, to hear this prayer. It's, It's great to pray, Lord, please hear this. He does it twice. And then he says, look on your shield, on our shield rather, and look on the face of your anointed. This is one of the reasons why I think it was written during the time of the kings of Judah. It calls this, this person the anointed, God's anointed. But the temple already exists, so after Solomon probably. But the king's job for those who were making pilgrimage to Zion was to protect them. He was to make sure that the highways were clear of brigands. And those who would come and harass God's people as they, like sheep, went up to God's house. That was part of the king's job. And I probably made some Starbucks baristas uncomfortable crying about this yesterday when I was putting this together. Do you see how this all comes together? Christ, the anointed God's anointed is not just at God's house as the best feature when we arrive. He is here with us, making sure we make it home to God's house safely. Look on the face of your anointed. He is with us, making sure we make it. He is here. He is among us. He is a shield. He is defending us, even through the valley of weeping. And the slough of despond. The point, God has answered this prayer. As the sons of Korah cry out, 
Behold our shield. Look on the face of your anointed. God has delivered on this prayer in full measure and given us David's greater son. He has come in his power. He is our shield and strong defender. The Lord has given us his Christ. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the amazing thing here is in the same way that the sons of Issachar understood the times and came and helped David in his time of need, even though Christ needs none of our help to accomplish his purposes, he has yet opened the door for us to come and join him in his work of protecting those who are on their way to Zion. want to partner with your king, the greater son of David, in his hour of need. You can. You can make your life about it. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, whoever sing your praise. Number five, we see the priorities of those who seek God's house. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Look, I know that sounds good in the song, and we're going to sing that song here in a bit. Better is one day in your courts. And especially if you grew up around the same time I did, or within, you know, ten years one way or another, you've probably sung that song many, many times. And maybe we did and never really thought about it. When we sang those verses, did we really understand what it meant under the new covenant to say better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere? Does the way you relate to your church family show that at all? This is God's house. Does the way you allocate your time when you're here with your church family, show that. That it is true for you that a day spent in God's house is better than a thousand elsewhere. If we're so eager always to get back home or to get on with the things that we have going on in our lives, or if we're just fine when we're here hanging out with the people that are just like us, do we really love God's house? Is it really true of us that one day within God's house is better than a thousand elsewhere. We have a lot of work to do in our own hearts to sing that song honestly. Maybe for you, when we sing it in a few moments, it can be a petition. Lord, make this the case in my heart that I would long for your house such that even a day spent with your people in your spiritual house is better than a thousand elsewhere. We either forget what God's house really is or we're not that interested in God or both. Look, I know these are hard things to say. But I don't think there's any other way to be faithful to the text and the high calling of this psalm and that it places on us. This is, if you're, if you're in Christ, you're a part of the royal priesthood. Do you get that? This is your sacred inheritance to serve in the house of God, even if you're not one of the ones who makes their entire lives about it. 
And we see the longings of those who love God's house. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. At first glance, this seems like a no-duh statement, right? Of course, you would rather be in the temple of God than dwelling in the tents of wickedness. But is that true of you? Is it true that you would rather serve in God's house in obscurity and in subtle, perhaps even menial ways on the outside rather than have a place of prominence in the world? I'll be happy just being a doorkeeper, he says. And obviously, when we look at this as believers, you know, he's not talking about a literal building. I'm very grateful for our greeters and security teams. But even if you're not intimidating enough to serve on the security team, you can be yet a doorkeeper in God's house. In this sense, God's house is always hiring. There's always a need for more people to take this kind of longing to heart and to stir it up with greater zeal and greater longing. And there is great reward And then we see the gain, the gain of zeal for God's house. This is how the psalm ends. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the theological ground for all of these promises and all of these assurances for living in, seeking and serving in God's house. Number one, God provides light for those who seek his house and serve in his house. He is a sun. I don't really like the literal sun. But what's being said here is that God shines light into your, into your life. Your life is illuminated. Things begin to make more sense. There is purpose. There's something to live for. In a dark, dark, dark world. Number two, he protects them. He's a shield. Even if you do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can have a deep, deep sense of God's protection on you if you seek his house. Number three, he bestows favor and honor. In context, I think it means this. When he says the Lord bestows favor and honor, I think he means those who seek and go up and set their hearts on the highways that lead to Zion There is blessing and honor for them. Favor from the Lord. And number four, he withholds no good thing for those who walk uprightly. And I think in the context as well here, what what it means to walk uprightly is to obey the summons to come to God's house. It's mandated in the Old Testament. It's mandated in the New Testament. If we take seriously these commands to set your heart on the highways to Zion, then No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If that is your heart's desire, you'll get it. Number five, happy. That's what the Bible means. It says blessed in most cases. There's another word that's translated to blessed, but, but most of them mean something like happy, filled with joy. Happy is the one who takes him at his word and commits themselves to make sure that we will be the ones to seek his house. No longer will the Lord's house be left in disarray. 
No longer will dust accumulate. Will the word be lost? No longer will his doors be left untended. No longer will tarnish creep in and decay. No longer will will we stand for the state of spiritual decline in the church. We will tend to God's house. There is blessing for that one. So what will you do? How will you live? And how will you love from here on out? I want you to hear in my voice, in these very words that I'm using today, the summons of your Lord God to long for, to seek, and serve, and maybe even make your whole life about God's house and the building that is the people of God. It is time to build up God's house. Let's pray. Father, you are good and merciful. And who are we to be invited to serve in your house, to sit at your table, to be considered sons and daughters, members of a royal priesthood? Help us see and believe that these things are so, how radically it would change our lives if we really believed these things. How it would change the way we think about our families, change the way we think about our jobs, change the way we think about how we use our time. We would truly make the best use of the time. Please encourage those who are discouraged right now. Either because of my words or because of how their flesh is responding to your exhortation. I know that these things are heavy. Father, please give them strong support and show us hope. Show us the blessing of those who set their hearts on the highways to Zion. May it be so for your name's sake and the glory of your son, Jesus. You're anointed. It's in his name we pray. Amen. stand together as we sing. There is one more.